You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, as always, Jen Wilkin and JT English. On today's episode, we talk about the time when Jesus rolled into Jerusalem on a donkey and started flipping tables. Yep, we're talking about the triumphal entry in Matthew 21. If you remember kind of the two arcs of the Knowing Faith podcast that we follow broadly, right? Not every episode, but most of the time we're talking about one of two things. One, we're talking through, at least this year, the Gospel of Matthew, because at our church, the Village Church, men and women are studying the Gospel of Matthew. And so we've been kind of diving in at different portions of that study and doing a little bit more reflection. And we hope that it will serve the people that are in that Bible study, but also those who just have an interest in learning about different passages in the Bible or maybe doing a study in Matthew themselves. Uh, And so today we talk about Matthew 21, which is the triumphal entry. And we just do a little bit of biblical theology to set up the stage. We talk about the gospel of Matthew and where we're at in the narrative when we get to the triumphal entry. And then why does Jesus flip tables over in the temple? And what does the triumphal entry have to do with that? And how is this all connected in the gospel of Matthew as a whole? We hope you enjoy the discussion. Here we are. We're talking and with two of my favorite people, um, I mean, cards on the table. I came in at a, at a, I was kind of, I was emotionally thin this morning. And then Jen just came in and encouraged me. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. It was genuine. I know it was. I feel like maybe on the podcast, people miss that element of our relationships. Yeah. But we do actually, I'm... One of my favorite things about you is that I feel like you're really for me, and I would say that the same is definitely true on my side. Well, thank you. I I love the fact that I feel like, so I was talking to somebody recently, and they were like, you guys really have fun together, and you poke at each other, and you feel comfortable (laughs) doing that. I was like, yeah, there's a lot of encouragement behind the scenes you don't see. Yeah, I think we feel comfortable doing that, because we, we do know how deeply we are for each other. Sure. I'm pretty sure there's a whole category of podcasts out there for people who want to hear people encourage one another mm-hmm. and feel encouraged by one another. You we know, na- we you know start our name lane. dropping those? You no, burn your bridges. Good. We're cool. <laughs> Jen just takes out a rocket launcher and starts going to town here. Um, well, listen, today we are talking about the time that Jesus rolled into Jerusalem on a donkey and started flipping tables. Uh, and so this is the triumphal entry. And as you know, part of this podcast, we have been kind of doing, I don't know, we would kind of come up for air and then we would dive deep down into Matthew and do kind of a a small reflection or some consideration around a passage in Matthew. Part of the reason we've been doing that is as a church in men and women's Bible class, we've been going through the book of Matthew. We did part one in the fall and part one covered which chapter? How far was part one? It was one through 13. 12 or 13. Okay, Mm -hmm. so about half the book. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we're in part two now. And we're completing that study. We have hundreds of men and women completing Mm -hmm. this study across the five campuses now. And so we're going to be talking about Matthew 21 and the triumphal entry. This this in God's providence just lines up. I went to Jen's teaching yesterday and it was this topic. Oh, on the triumphal entry. Yeah, yeah. So she's got her notes right here. She's ready to roll. Uh, No, no, the the crazy (laughs) thing about Jen that people don't know, and maybe I'm about to air your dirty laundry, (laughs) is one time I heard Jen give this teaching and it was incredible. Well, I mean, I've heard her teach a lot where it was really, really good. But I heard one, I was like, that's incredible. And afterwards I was like, hey, I'd love to see your notes on that. 
And she was like, I promise you, you don't want to see my nose. <laughs> and I was like, no, I really do because I want to. She was like, okay, probably all of the good stuff you heard was not in there. Yeah. And then I realized how smart she actually was because yeah. I looked at her notes and it was like the text. Like it was printed text, like the actual Bible text, and then like chicken the scratch around it yeah. of like just <laughs> insights. And I thought, my goodness, she she's a better teacher than I'll ever be. Well, I, either that or my method is so terrible that it cannot be passed on or uh, It's like beautiful mind. Road. You're like, it doesn't make sense to anybody You know, else I actually, I don't know. Do you guys remember when um, Tim Keller posted yes, a picture yes. of it? And it made me feel so much better because yeah, yeah. I, 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 I just needed a moment to go, now that guy's weird, right? Because you look at your own notes and you're like. Yeah, there was a blog that ran like five or six preacher's notes like yeah. week to week to week to week. And I think they did maths. They did. Tim Keller, John Piper, and, it, and several others. It was fat because they were all radically Every, Yeah, different. everyone has their own method. And I'm, I'm amazed how often I'll hear people say, oh, you should manuscript your teaching for the first four years or something like that. I would not be teaching now if I'd had to manuscript everything. Uh, I think you have to find what works for you. Right, sure. And you found it. It's working. You got well. the special sauce. Keep it going. Mm. So listen, what um, when we get to the story uh, of the triumphal entry, where are we at in Matthew where are we at in the Bible? Yeah, What's I, happening? <clears throat> Give us a kind of a picture here. We'll, we'll, let's get to where we are at, at Matthew in just a second, because Matthew is kind of, of course, happening in this much bigger picture of biblical theology. So I'll try to do this in 60, biblical theology in 60 seconds or less. But okay, I've got the timer yeah, on. This is really, you have, we, like, literally, <laughs> literally, there's a timer on, timer on us. Um, Genesis 1 and 2, God creates a perfect world. Because of their sin, they're expelled from this world, this, this Eden, this kingdom of God. But God is at in uh, the Bible is going, uh, taking great pains to show us that God is restoring and bringing his kingdom back to this world. So he's going to, in the Abrahamic covenant, he's going to create a people for himself that he dwells with, that he rules with, and that he extends his grace to the nations through. Uh, then Mosaic covenant briefly, he's going to create this nation of priests in order to reign and rule with them and to extend his holiness to the nations. Probably most significantly as it relates to this text we're in today, the Davidic covenant is that God uh, has a people reigning and ruling in the in Israel, in the, in the land that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God has set up a king for himself, King David, uh, and God's presence is with them. And so we have all the elements of the kingdom of God being established here in Jerusalem. God's king, uh, David, is reigning on the throne. God's presence is with them in the tabernacle. Uh, and the people are largely living obediently to God. They've not kind of syncretized uh, in, into bringing in uh, idols. Of course, I mean, there was sin in the land, but nothing like we saw in previous uh, books of the Bible. And David asks uh, a question. He says, I want to build a house for you. I want to I want to make your kingdom permanent here. I want to reign and rule as your king, and I want your presence to be permanent with us in the land. And God responds and saying, you know what? Your son's going to, to build my temple. Uh, and you're not going to be king forever, but your son will be king forever. And then ultimately we see that this is not true for his immediate son. Solomon does build a, a temple, but he does not reign and rule forever. So the Bible is giving us this picture that there needs to be a king who reigns and rules forever on behalf of God, this Messiah, this anointed one, this king who will come and triumphantly reign. But we see immediately after this Davidic covenant is given us God's people rebel. They are sent into exile again. So we have the Assyrian kingdom destroying the northern kingdom mm -hmm. and the Babylonian kingdom destroying the southern kingdom. They're sent into exile, much like the picture that we see in Genesis chapter three. They're sent east of the garden or east of the kingdom and they end up in, in, uh, in, in, in Babel again. After 70 years in exile, they're brought back into the land through the, the work of, ne of Ezra and Nehemiah. And when they're in the land, what doesn't happen is the kingdom is not restored because there is no king ruling and God's presence is not restored in the temple, even after they rebuilt the temple. And so there's this sense as we open the pages of the New Testament, and specifically the gospel of Matthew, that, that, that 
the gospel writers are going to be at pains to talk about how is God going to bring his king back and how is God going to bring his presence back into the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's where Matthew picks up. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah, you actually you actually preached on this right. a couple of weeks ago. Right. So you got you had a lot of juice. I did. It's all there. <laughs> um, it was a great sermon on um, Ma- Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. What, say say a little bit about that. Set up the Matthew context. Yeah, so Matthew way. 1, 1, uh, speaking of this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And what Matthew is trying to do is kind of that verse functions as this bridge between the Old Testament and the New, that God is not only just a promise maker, but a promise keeper. And so we can't understand the promises kept in the New Testament until we understand the promises made in the Old. And God has made very specific promises. Uh, to Abraham and to David. So when the Bible talks about God's promises, those aren't kind of esoteric or promises that we can't understand, but very specific ones. And he's made a promise to Abraham and to David, which are brought to fulfillment and completion in the person and work of Jesus. So Matthew kicks off his gospel, son of David, son of Abraham. Mm-hmm. This is who this Christ mm-hmm. is. Okay, what what's really transpiring there that's significant to understand before we get to the triumphal entry? Well, I mean, our listeners may remember when we talked about the Magi and the whole uh, the whole nativity narrative that you get this whole scene of foreign kings who come and or foreign wise men who come and acknowledge the kingship of the true king, all the while that the false king Herod or the literal king is is looking to do harm. So there's this heavy kingship theme that begins in chapter two, and then it's following Jesus throughout his ministry, and he's slowly revealing to his disciples the nature of his kingdom through the Sermon on the Mount. And it's that language that we've used frequently of upside down. And I loved actually in Matt's sermon this past week, he, rather than referring to the kingdom of Christ as the upside down kingdom, he called it the right side up Isn't kingdom. Yeah, yeah, I was I like, that. man, I could have used that about 20 weeks ago. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was really good. Uh, and so just the idea that, that you should expect the unexpected and often the opposite, you know, what the world would say makes a king and makes a kingdom. That's what's going to be true in the, in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, for the first portion of his ministry in the first half of the gospel of Matthew, he meets with various responses to his ministry. But by the time you get to the end of Matthew 13, the tide has begun to turn. Mm-hmm. The religious leaders are beginning to to be openly hostile to this kingdom that he is trying to inaugurate. And, um, and so by the time we find ourselves at the triumphal entry, he has actually, whereas before he would say things like, don't tell anyone that I've healed you, or, you know, he would, he would direct comments to his disciples now, uh, right before the triumph entry, he has given his disciples a right expectation of what is going to come in the in the Olivet Discourse, and he's basically gone wheels off on, on the religious leaders, and he pronounces these woes over mm-hmm. them, where he basically, every accusation around them that has floated around in the text is now found in this one chapter. So uh, he has been out in the surrounding areas doing ministry, but the time has come now for him to go to the heart of religious practice. He's going to the center of the Jewish faith. He's going to Jerusalem. And so the entry is his his entry into Jerusalem, but then his next immediate entry is into the heart of the religious circle, uh, the temple. And and so he reacts in both of those places in really significant ways. Yeah, that's right. I think, uh, I even think of too, like, so you think of Peter, uh, in his expectations of what God's King would be like and Mm -hmm. the expectations of, and and something I've, I've just been trying to think through. And I, as I tried to teach on this topic, I try to encourage, uh, our students and 
members to think through is that is that there is something deeply political happening here. If we're talking mm-hmm. about the kingdom of God, it's so hard. At least it's been hard, it's been hard for me to move kind of just from a spiritual reading of the Bible. I'm not even sure that's the right language to talk about, but to talk about the actual political expectations of Israel of the day, they were based upon God's promises. So here you have Peter expecting God's kingdom to reign forth right. and expecting, and, and again, to understand that they're being oppressed by an occupied foreign enemy mm-hmm. in the land that they believe was theirs, mm-hmm. specifically Rome. And Jesus asks Peter, who do you think that I am? And that's not just a claim of divinity or a claim kind of of spirituality. Mm-hmm. It's like, who do you think I am? And they say, you're the king. You're mm-hmm. the king who's coming to do all that God has promised. That's mm-hmm. not just kind of this, you're the one who's going to forgive sins, though he certainly is. It's you're the one who's going to reign and rule forever on behalf of God. And you're going to do it by overthrowing the Roman Empire. Right. And so when he says that you're the king, He's, the, the, the gospel then takes a turn. He says, you're exactly right. Don't tell anybody because I have to go and suffer. Mm-hmm. And then the Bible tells us that Peter rebukes him, which I probably would do too. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like if, 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 if I, yeah. I, I know my Old Testament, at least Peter yeah. knew it better than I did, but I, I know the promises and I mm-hmm. understand that God's coming to reign and rule forever and he's going to overthrow his enemies. And I, you've just, I've just said you're the king. You said that I'm right. And you tell me that you're going to go die. Kings don't die on a cross they send people to the crosses kings don't die on a cross they rule from thrones mm-hmm. yep. and so you have this under, I, I, I kind of empathize with Peter that if God's kingdom is going to come and it's coming through this king you can't go go die and Peter, but, but Jesus says it's exactly what I'm going to go do which should influence our understanding of the triumphal entry yeah and I well, think you guys have done a great job of capturing the dynamic the tone kind of what's going on at the moment when we get to this passage you know, uh, just to kind of set the narrative context. So you guys have done a great job of setting biblical theology, what's going on in Matthew. When you get to Matthew 21, so Jesus and his crew, they're drawing near to Jerusalem. They're at the Mount of Olives. And he tells them, hey, go into the village. And right, and what's he tell them to find? A, a donkey. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> tell them to find a, a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. This, I mean, so he tells him, go steal a donkey. <laughs> borrow. Uh, yeah, borrow a donkey. Yeah, something hey, the earth is the Lord and the earth is the Lord's in the fullness it's, thereof. It's true, but I'm just imagining being the guy who's like out in the front, you know, just like picking up stuff and some guys come up and be like, hey, we're taking this donkey. The king needs a donkey. The Lord needs a donkey. And he's like, like, but that's my donkey. It's <laughs> Phil. Yeah. You know? It's Phil. I mean, whatever it is. The, what, he probably had a name. Yeah. I mean, it, it probably wasn't Phil, but it might have been <laughs> fill up or something but what is happening but so and then it says this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying say to the daughter of zion behold your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a beast of burden so i just want to pause here is there any what's the significance of the donkey right what's what's going on here that he uh that he picked for his transportation Why, why is that here well, Matthew and Jesus uh, are both very concerned with the theme of fulfillment. They want uh, Matthew is, is structuring his narrative in such a way, and then the words that Jesus is choosing, those things are happening to point his um, listeners, his disciples, to the fact that Jesus is the culmination of all of these Old Testament prophecies. And so you have the one that's dropped into the text, but his his original audience would have known the others. They would have known that in Genesis 49, there's a significant prophecy that Jacob speaks over his 12 sons and that for Judah, from whom Jesus descends, um, the prophecy is, um, hold on, I just lost it on my phone, 
Uh, verse 10 of chapter 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. So you've got that significant um, passage there. And then probably the one that is closest related to the scene that we see Jesus um, act play out as he's going into Jerusalem is First Kings 1, 32 and 33, mm-hmm. which is the description of the coronation of Solomon, mm-hmm. who was the, oh, that's right, the son of David. He's right. the literal son of David. And specifically, David mentions that he's to ride in on a mule. Mm-hmm. So there's a just a very close association that Jesus forms there so that what his disciples should pick up on is, this is more than just you going into Jerusalem riding on a donkey that we picked up along the way. And I think they pick up on that, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. What do they say? I mean, what they say to him is, Hosanna, son of David. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. But so so it's not just the imagery, though, right. that seems counterintuitive mm-hmm. for oh, sure. a king triumphing. It's also, and I, I don't want this to sound, you know, like stepping into the imagination of the text. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm not. I don't want this to sound blasphemous against the trial. Kyle just entry. closed his Bible. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I'm just saying, um, what is triumphal? I mean, like, really, what does Christ have to hang his hat on? Why is this the triumphal entry here? Because it kind of seems like there are some people, even later on in this passage, in verse 10, who go, who is this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll just tell you, have you ever been in, I mean, you've been in an awkward spot before where you saw somebody walk into a room who expected that everybody yeah. kind of knew who yeah. they were. And it's awkward because you're like, I don't know who you are. <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, He's so, you know, Jesus is, he, I don't, Jesus is under no illusions about the depth of the loyalty of the crowds, mm-hmm. but he also understands the importance of getting from where he is in his ministry to where he knows he's going. And so the crowds, um, they serve a purpose, but he doesn't, I don't think as he's riding in on the donkey, he's like, look at all these people who have, you know, genuine belief that I'm the son of David. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it is what it is, but he, he understands it's a moment that will be looked back on and the significance of it understood later. And he's 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 building he's building these moments for his disciples who are going to go and spread the church to the ends of the earth, right? So that they can look back and say, "Oh, I get it, I see it." And mm-hmm. and you know, which is you know, w- we look at them in their confusion, or we look at the shifting in the crowd, and we're like, "Why didn't everybody see what was going on there?" Well, easy for us to say, and I think that's the thing you have to always remember as you're reading the Gospels is we do have the benefit of complete hindsight on this. Um, but and, and is that the only <clears throat> way in which we see it triumphal? Because, like, I guess I, I want to float an, an idea at you, and you guys can just tell me what you think. Because I think you're right, Jen. One of the main ways that we understand this to be the triumphal entry is looking back. Mm-hmm. But if you had been one of Jesus' disciples and you had seen him, even though we know there was a degree of confusion still in them, because it's very clear. Mm-hmm. I mean, throughout all of the discourse, it's clear. Even after his resurrection, it's. I mean, it's. It, they, they're confused. Um, but one of the things that they have seen is they have seen a king rule and reign over things that would be would have been the most unimaginable mm-hmm. things to be ruled and reigned over. So they had seen this king mm. like calm the waters. He's which, been demonstrating authority. Exactly. So without question, they have seen one who has unique cosmic kingly authority mm-hmm. over the most chaotic things in their imagination. Water. 
Mm-hmm. Right, so they're out in the sea, and she's like, "Yeah, I can either walk on this or I can quiet it." Right, mm-hmm. and that's huge for a Jewish mindset because you know they have some pretty visceral experiences with chaotic water mm-hmm. in their history, right? Yeah. Or disease or death. So they've seen Jesus step into these places where they're going, nobody has dominion over those things, and they've seen him exercise dominion. So do we lose something if we don't also see part of this triumphal entry? Is Jesus is not going to establish? The fact that he is Lord. He mm-hmm. has been establishing That's right. the mm-hmm. fact that he's Lord since the moment he entered the world. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So uh, is there – so I guess from the triumphal entry, it's both a – we see it in retrospect, but we also as a reader of the story know – Yes, this is a king. Mm-hmm. He has asserted his authority. Now, the crowds don't know all that. And or the question is, what will he do next, right. right? I mean, I think the triumphal entry is on the on the part of the crowds, there's a lot of anticipation of if he can do all these things out here, what will he do when yes. he gets into Jerusalem? Yeah, like once he gets there, he might be able to kick out Caesar and all of his minions. Mm-hmm. And that's exa- I think that's exactly what they're expecting. Mm-hmm. But if we're thinking about kind of, again, the story of biblical theology of um, exile, God not being with his people mm-hmm. and the story of them in need of a king. What's the first thing that Jesus does after he enters Jerusalem? He goes into the temple. He goes into mm-hmm. the temple. Like, I don't think that's just a, a, a passing line for Matthew to bridge the story. I think right. he's making a theological claim mm-hmm. of the king is in, in the process of being enthroned mm-hmm. and he's in the process of reestablishing his presence in the temple. I want to mm-hmm. get there. Great. Uh, because, because that's, that's where we're headed. But what does Hosanna mean? Save us. Salvation. It means save. And so it's interesting. There's some ambiguity in the text about whether the crowd is crying out, save us, son of David, or if they're crying out, God save the son of David. Ooh, okay. um, which I thought was really interesting. You know, that's you know, you, you, I've always grown up and heard that first uh, that first version of it, but mm. I, I kind of got into the Crown on Netflix a whole lot. <laughs> and and if you think about it, well, I mean, really think about that. That's our that's our idea of what it means. That's what kingship is to us, yeah. right? It's it's uh, it's power and wealth and pomp and circumstance and and what do they cry when the Queen is driving by in the in the cortege? They're saying, "God save the Queen." And it's interesting to me that uh, that whole idea, if that is the the, the meaning behind what the crowd is saying. And I actually kind of really like that interpretation because it's almost a prophetic word on the lips of those who have no idea what they're saying. Mm-hmm. He will save. He mm-hmm. will preserve his king, not the way that anybody thinks. And he will have an eternal throne. And he will have an eternal throne. David. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture. But what does the Bible say about generosity? 
In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. So, so just to land, save, but possibly there's kind of these dual angles on yeah. it. Yeah. Well, right. it could be that it's intentionally, you know, that we that we can't get to a clear place on it because we we should take it a little of both ways. I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. I've never ever heard that. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't either. And, like but it. but of course, I haven't studied Matthew twenty one with near the proximity that you have. Well, that's my that's my friend Frederick Dale Bruner, mm-hmm. who uh, JT's like. What think, are you reading over there hey, the again? More you, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I just I, I heard from somebody once that I should read the Bible without oh, a commentary. Huh. The, was that? I think that was you. Huh, okay. I think about that. <laughs> oh man. Um, <laughs> there's really, if you know JT and Jen, there is really nothing more like palpably on the nose than JT calling in the question Jen's hermeneutical <laughs> because JT and I come at the Bible with more of a theological reading, which is just like, yeah, that's what it says, but what do you think it really says? And Jen goes, no, that's exactly that's exactly what it says. <laughs> um, so, okay, when we, you just hit on this a minute ago, JT, but the triumphal entry. There are some approaches, and we're going to actually jump into this in a future podcast, but yeah. give us a teaser um, of the triumphal entry could also be understood as maybe one of the first moments in a series of moments mm-hmm. in the Gospels, particularly in Matthew, but also in Mark and Luke, um, where Jesus is being ushered in to Jerusalem as a king taking up his throne. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So maybe connect the triumphal entry to some distinct kingly imagery particularly enthronement and coronation that's coming after this entry. Yeah, so clearly the Bible is giving us a picture of coronation and enthronement after Jesus' death, his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. But I wonder if this is image and pictured for us before that. And I think it is. So uh, if you you kind of are just reading the text for what it says after the triumphal entry, Jesus, uh, or during the triumphal entry, there's cloaks on the road, branches, save us, bring your kingdom, son of David, would would you be established forever? Uh, Jesus then, as he enters, is anointed um, with oil. Uh, He's anointed, of course, in Matthew chapter 3, anointed again in in, uh, Matthew chapter 26. And this is kind of this imagery of 1 Samuel 16 of -hmm. of David being anointed to reign and rule as king. And then Jesus sits down with his disciples for a meal, and he talks about this kingdom language, right? He says, um, he, he, he gives them bread, he gives them wine, and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. I won't drink this again until I'm in my, until, until my father's kingdom Mm -hmm. has come. So this kingdom language, of course, is being practiced. And then Jesus before Pilate is this really incredible picture uh, where uh, they ask him, are you the king of the Jews? Mm -hmm. Jesus says, you've said so. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Pilate asks the crowd, what shall I do with this king? And the crowd says, crucify him. He's then taken, he's given a crown of thorns. Mm -hmm. He's given a reed, which functions as a king's scepter. Uh, They say, hail king of the Jews. He's struck on the head. 
And eventually, this is in John, but it's also, I think it's more clear in John, the mm-hmm. way John portrays it, but it's in Matthew also where they put a title above him, where they say, this is uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. When people, and John John highlights it, when people read it, they were like, whoa, 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 can we, can we make a modification to the sign? Can we say, uh, do not write King of the Jews, but rather this man said he's King mm-hmm. of the Jews. And Pilate says, what I have written is written. Mm-hmm. And so here you have this picture of the man who's claimed to be king, the man who's claimed to be, to be, to be establishing God's kingdom. He's doing it in the most upside down or perhaps, as we learned this past week, maybe the most right side way up possible where this triumphal entry is not his defeat. It's, it's actually his victory. And what we see is Jesus sitting on the cross, crowned with a scepter, having just been robed with purple. And the title given him is king of the Jews. And that this, although it was intended to be mockery, is actually not just atonement for the forgiveness of sins, but the enthronement of the son of David. Mm. So when we look at Jesus on the cross, certainly the, the things that should come to our mind are forgiveness of sins, justification, being made right with God. But we could also see a king enthroned who's reigning and ruling over the nations, extending grace to all people. Yeah, that's so helpful. And we're actually going to be doing some next podcast. We'll have Jeremy Treat on talking at length for 30 minutes or so about that very thing. But the cross is enthronement ceremony. But I just felt like with the triumphal entry, we couldn't miss an opportunity to just connect some dots there. Yeah. So, but if the kingdom is right side up, Jesus immediately steps into the temple and starts throwing things upside down, right? <laughs> I mean, this is to me one of the weirdest. It is. It's just a weird story. So, uh, just a few things here. Jesus enters the temple. He starts flipping tables out. He's driving out people who sought, uh, who sold and bought in the temple. Um, he said to them, hey, you've made my father's house or my, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And then he starts to, he, starts to heal people. He's there. It's like he's holding court in the temple. So why? And why now? So he's been to Jerusalem, right? And presumably this was happening then as well. Why is he flipping them now? <laughs> like, Okay, I think we get a we get a backwards confusion on this. We're like, why did Jesus all of a sudden go postal? Yeah. But really, the more amazing thing is that Jesus has not done so sooner. Right. That, and I guess that's what confuses me. It's like, it's not like Jesus has spent his whole ministry calling out like the hypocrisy of false religion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is really... Like, it's not like they mm-hmm. just started doing this. No, it's, right. this is super, like, like if we could use this word to describe it, it is a violent uh, situation. Yeah. Yeah, well, he so he said throughout the Gospel of Matthew, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come. And this is one of the signs that his time is upon him. He's He is now courting opposition directly because, I mean, even what we've been discussing here, you had, um, you had the Jews don't like Rome, Rome doesn't like the Jews, um, but what the Jews don't like more than they don't like Rome is what Jesus is doing, and which will ultimately lead to the Jews partnering with Rome to take care of the Jesus problem, which is kind of crazy if you think right. about it. They're going, they're going to, you know, make strange bedfellows for the sake of getting rid of this, this, this troublemaker. And so Jesus knows that his time is at hand, and he knows exactly what he... Um, needs to do to set in motion the events that he needs to and so he does it he you know we, we have this term microaggressions and if you think about being the sinless son of god every time you're around someone who commits a sin 
that's that's a microaggression in some sense. Hmm. And we like to flip out over the smallest things. And yet he has at this point lived 33 years as the sinless human among people who sin at every turn. The fact that we only see him get angry two times in the gospel accounts is is flabbergasting here. And when the the he's questioned about healing the the man with the withered hand on the right. Sabbath, and so um, I think we should pay special attention to where he chooses to display his anger. And he's here he is in the heart of the temple and he and basically and there's an interesting tie actually between this scene and when Judas comes back to the leaders uh, in Matthew 27 and he says I've I've sinned because um, I've uh, I've brought you an innocent man and he gives them tries to give them back the 30 pieces of silver and they won't take it and he ends up flinging the silver into the temple so you have these two really closely related scenes where where basically blood money is flung around the temple as if to say, you know, J- Judas finds that it's a it's a house of robbers as well when he comes back and, and tries to make right what has happened. Wow. So it's a statement about the the this where things have gone with the religious leaders and it's a it's a double indictment on what the temple has become and which which is intended to bring the person looking back to be able to say, well, no wonder uh, 70 AD happened. You know, no wonder Jesus is the temple that's mm. rebuilt in three days mm-hmm. because the existing temple is not worth even 30 pieces of silver. Golly. Uh, wow. <laughs> um, I'm like, I was leaning back in my chair. <laughs> 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 Just, you know, like, Jen, I have a question for you, too. I, I wonder if I no, just No, no questions. Yeah, here's, a, here's my question. Uh, you mentioned something on a previous podcast when we were talking about, I think it was it was our, one of our podcasts on original sin and exile and the repercussions of the sinfulness of humanity. And, and of course, when we see Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we are talking about it being the temple of God or the right. kingdom of God right. that is meant to be extended to all nations. Uh, but because of their disobedience, they're driven out of the yes. temple, driven out of yeah. God's presence. Yeah. And I just realized the exact same language in Genesis 3. I, I need to look at the original languages too to see if this is accurate. Mm-hmm. But it says in Genesis, or sorry, in Matthew 21 verse 12, when Jesus entered the temple, he drove them out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is this exact same imagery or language of mm-hmm. exile to those who are being disobedient to mm-hmm. God or not representing God appropriately in God's yeah. temple. Which it looks like there might be some kind of a biblical theology or picture yeah. of in God's temple. He's meant to be worshiped, praised, given glory. Yeah. Well, and, and the fact that they have to be drove, driven out tells you, driven, do you driven. like that? There's like my that. English degree. Mm-hmm. Driven out shows, it's almost like it's an antithetical picture. It's like we have made our own kingdom right. here. And, and right. a new Babylon. Yeah, new Babylon. and, and don't Babylon. drive me out of the place where I hold power mm-hmm. and where I, and, 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 and they've shut up the kingdom of heaven from others, right? I mean, that's the, that's the really, the, the sadness of the Judas story is he comes back to the very place where justice should have been dispensed for Jesus when he says he's an innocent man. Mm-hmm. Mercy should have been extended to him when he confesses his sin. Mm-hmm. And instead they say, what have we to do with it? Handle it yourself. They basically say, am I my brother's keeper? Right. And it's a picture, I think, too, of Jesus. So Jesus has not established or demonstrated his dominion right. over um, the religious life religious of Israel. Yeah. Religious life of Israel. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. taught against them, mm-hmm. but nowhere, nothing close to the exorcisms mm-hmm. you see Jesus perform, mm-hmm. to the uh, the uh, the healings, the resurrection. There's no not been any visceral, like visceral, visible sign of that yet. And this is that moment this is it, yeah. where he's like, right. you know, so the disciples would have been looking at it like, man. You know, he drove out not only demons, he also drove out the money changers mm-hmm. from the temple. And so there is, 
I think, a sense in which Jesus is landing the plane, mm-hmm. so to speak, on the demonstration of his dominion in this kingdom, right? Well, and you could even say this is the initiation of the, the temple destruction right. sequence, so to speak. You know, that um, he's they, they're going to hurl insults at him on the cross of, hey, you said you'd rebuild the, the temple in three days, and now you can't even save yourself. And yet, you know, the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, just as he said it would be. Um, and yet his temple still stands, Mm -hmm, you know, he's the eternal temple. And so to them, it's inconceivable in, uh, hold on, inconceivable. Let me channel uh, Prince's bride there for a second. (laughs) Inconceivable that 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 when, like when he tells them not one stone will be left on top of another, right before he gives the Olivet Discourse, To them, that they assume that everything else must be annihilated. If right. that's the case, they cannot imagine that every other building would not fall before right. that building would fall, and 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 so it's apocalyptic to them on a on a huge scale. And th- which I think is you know why when we head to seventy A.D., everybody's like, oh, this is it. Like they mm. would have expected Jesus to like I don't know send a lightning bolt and blow it up or something, and instead he allows it to happen through the agency of the Romans. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, that was a fruitful discussion. I'd love to just maybe kind of do a little bit of wrap up with something fun here. Um, not that that hasn't been fun. That was that was a blast. I enjoyed it. We had a great time. <laughs> just for everybody listening. <laughs> like, 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 if you hated that, you'll love this. Um, but I would love to just maybe get um, one kind of quick fire tip for Bible readers from Jen. Maybe one quick fire tip for young theologians or new theologians from JT. Um, so Jen, kick us off. What's like your one, we don't have a lot of time. So what's like your one quick fire tip? Um, print out a copy of the book of the Bible that you're reading, uh, copy and paste it a chapter at a time into a document, double space it, set the margins to wide, and then use that for your reading copy because it keeps you from running to study notes. And it also gives you the freedom to mark up the text so that you can start drawing your own. Um, conclusions. Yeah, okay. that's good. We do that in all of our curriculum here yeah. as best we can. Yeah. That's really helpful. Uh, quick tip for young theologians. Uh, I think this is something we try to embody in at the village, in this department, and I would hope it would be embodied elsewhere, is doing theology in community. I think you just saw some of that here where we're learning from each other still. I mean, we've we tried to spend time in the text by ourselves. We tried to spend time reading by ourselves. I was reading Dallas Willard last night, which is a book that Jen recommended to me, but yet I'm still in here learning new things, things that I haven't seen, mm-hmm. texts that I've taught before. And so if you're listening to this podcast and you're interested in doing theology, find a group of friends and do theology with them. Ask them questions. Mm-hmm. Have them ask questions to you. Have somebody on speed dial when you say, hey, I think I just saw something new. Mm-hmm. Call call one of your friends. Call a home group member. Call community remember your pastor and do theology with others okay so fun for more information you can look into the show notes in the podcast description we'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on itunes or wherever you find your podcast you can find us online at trainingthechurch.com you can find us on instagram and twitter by searching knowing faith on our next episode we're going to be talking about the crucified king with Jeremy Treat, talking about the cross and the kingdom. How do they connect? Jeremy Treat is the author of the book, The Crucified King. He's a pastor at Reality LA. He's a friend of the village. And so we are really looking forward to that. See you next time. Grace and peace.